Before we begin our study in the Word today, I want us to read through some Scripture. I will read and you can follow along with me on the screen. Our topic this morning is going to be on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to think about these passages as we read through them, for they focus our attention on the key passages related to that significant and unique baptism. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." Paul writes in Romans 6, 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And in Colossians he writes, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 12.13 For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So before we begin our study this morning in Ephesians, uh, we will open in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for kids. Kids, you can go ahead out, then I'll pray. All right, the rest of us, we will now open in prayer. We will now pray before we get into the Word. Our Father, we're thankful that we can look at Your Word and that we can put things together and understand Your Word and that God the Holy Spirit works in our thinking and through our studying, through our reflection, through our uh, listening to the teaching of Your Word to help us to understand all that we have in Christ and all that You have given us in the foundation of that. And Father, as we study this so important topic, we are reminded that that this is the foundation of our understanding of our union with Christ, our identification with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. And it is 
unique to this dispensation. Now, Father, as we study these things, help us to be challenged and respond to the challenge that Paul presents there in Romans 6-4, that it is on this basis we should live in newness of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most significant things that ever happened to us happened the instant we were saved. We didn't feel a thing. If you felt something, it had nothing to do with the baptism by the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people who think that the baptism by the Holy Spirit is an experience, that this is something that happens after you are saved, although some think that it may happen when you're saved. But in their view, that this happens after you're saved, and it is going to be indicated by speaking in tongues. That's the Pentecostal view. There is so much confusion about this. Uh, Each of the six ministries that we're studying as we look at the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today are unique to the church age in the way they take place in the church age. I add that qualifier because in the millennial kingdom, uh, Israel, Jews, under under their new covenant, will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A lot of theologians confuse that. They think that because we're indwelt by the Spirit and they're indwelt by the Spirit, that we, may, we, the church, must have some relationship to the new covenant. The fact is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church age, as we've seen in our look at uh, Ephesians Ephesians 2.18 and 2.22, doesn't characterize the indwelling of the Spirit with any of the characteristics that are found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 or any of the other parallel passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in some of the minor prophets that relate to the new covenant to Israel. By making the indwelling in the church and the indwelling in the new covenant for Israel in the millennial kingdom the same, they create much, much confusion. And this is part of the problem uh, that we face today as we study these doctrines. It might surprise you that as you peruse a number of systematic theologies, that sometimes there's not even a category of pneumatology in those systematic theologies. I took the opportunity just to take some extra time to study and see what, uh, what was said in some different systematic theologies, even those who were written by premillennial dispensationalists. They have no category of pneumatology. They say very little about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's overlooked. Sometimes I read one systematic theology that's one of the most popular ones today, and he talks about the baptism of the Spirit, but he never defines the baptism of the Spirit. And because he's not a dispensationalist, he doesn't understand that it is the unique, it's the distinctive sign of the church age, and it's only for the church age. So it's important for us to go through this because uh, although many of you have gone through this before, each time I try to do things a little differently and add a a few new insights here or there, but we need to understand this because Paul spent so much time talking about it, and it's really the foundation for our spiritual life when we understand those first four verses in Romans chapter 6. So as we have studied... In Ephesians 2.18, we read, For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And in Ephesians 2.22, at the conclusion of the section that we studied from verse 11 through 22, Paul concludes by saying, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So in Christ, that indicates our position in Him. You also are being built together for a dwelling place. That being built together is the church, that living 
spiritual organism that we're all a part of that includes every believer in Christ from the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33 up to the present and will include all those who trust in Christ up to the rapture. But because the rapture removes the restrainer, last time we talked about the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit, because of the rapture, the restrainer is removed, the the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, and because the seven years of the tribulation are the last seven years in the vision that was given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, where where those years were were designated for you and your people for Israel and the people and, and Daniel's people Israel it's not part of the church age so there's no baptism by the spirit and there's no indwelling of the spirit as we have experienced it in the church age and the reason I say that is because there are some dispensationalists who don't believe that the restrainer passage deals with the Holy Spirit, and they have the baptism of the Spirit and they have um, the indwelling of the Spirit on into the tribulation, which really contradicts the whole idea of, of that period being set aside for the conclusion of those seven years related, uh, related to Israel. Now, one thing I wanted to point out here in, in this review is that we have this statement here, for through him we, we both have access, and then we have the phrase, by one spirit. That's the Greek preposition in, which indicates means. But what I wanted you to notice here is that in the English translation in the cutout there, it is translated as in, with, by, or to. Now, if you like precision in your English, you know that those four prepositions don't mean the same thing. That if you're in the house, it's different from being by the house, either spatially or locally. Or if you're doing something by by using some tool, that's an instrumental idea. That's a different sense to the preposition by. And so it gets very confusing. And this has impacted the church because you have statements like Matthew 3.11, which, where John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the with in both those places is, is a translation of the pre- Greek preposition in. That's consistent in the King James Version and New King James Version in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in Acts. But when you get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, for by one spirit, but it's the same preposition in the Greek. What happened at one point, about over 100 years ago, is in the holiness movement and then as that developed into the Pentecostal movement, they looked at, the, they didn't know the Greek, they looked at the English and said, ah, it's with over here in the Gospels, it's by over here in the Epistles. There are two baptisms by the Holy Spirit. And now we started getting into a lot of confusion. And by not properly understanding how this preposition is used in Corinthians, that it's the same preposition that you have in the Gospels, you have people who talked about the the, the spirit baptizing, I'm talking about non-charismatics which believe that the spirit baptized, but it's the same preposition. What we're going to learn is that there's no place in the Bible that says that the spirit baptizes anyone. So you have to pay attention till we get to the end to understand what it really means. So what we're looking at here is the ministries of the Holy Spirit coming out of our passage in Ephesians chapter 2 to understand that there are two ministries of the Holy Spirit to the world at large. The first is the restraining ministry and the second is his convicting ministry. And then at the time of, of salvation, I have listed six different ministries that take place at the instant of our salvation. And this is 
for the church age. We are regenerated. That has occurred in all dispensations. But the baptism by the Spirit, the personal indwelling by the Spirit, illumination, uh, baptism and indwelling are unique to the church age. Illumination took place prior. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. And then the filling and the sealing are also unique to the church age. But I'll spell those out as we go along. So last time we started looking at what the Bible teaches about the ministries of God the Holy Spirit today. We looked first at his restraining ministry, which is before salvation and his ministry to the world, where according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7, uh, Paul writes, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. That is, the he there refers to the Antichrist in the future tribulation. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the one who is taken out of the way is the Holy Spirit at the time of the rapture. And so he is restraining evil. You think that there's significant evil in some places today. But when you look at the descriptions of what happens in the uh, tribulation, we ain't seen nothing yet. It gets really, really bad. Second ministry we looked at last time is what the Bible teaches about the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is in John 16, 8. Jesus says, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. He's talking about when he when the Holy Spirit comes. He came on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. He will convict the world of sin, which has the idea of of, con- of uh, convicting them or setting forth the case on these three things. Uh, convincing the world, uh, convicting the world, excuse me, not convincing, convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 16, 8. Do I have that? Oh, in the NET on the right. I like that translation. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong. That's what he does. He he is not convincing them that it's true. He is making clear these three elements when we are witnessing to people. The first is of sin because they do not believe in me. That's the basis for condemnation in John three eighteen. That. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So they are, uh, God the Holy Spirit will convict them that they are sinners because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Second, of righteousness, that is that they don't have righteousness. And this is dealing with the doctrine of the imputation of righteousness to us at salvation. We are all born without righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6, that we all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. God is perfectly righteous and perfectly just and therefore cannot have a relationship with those who are fallen, those who are unrighteous. And so he has to do something about that, and he did it at the cross. And all our unrighteousness is put on Christ at the cross, imputed to him, so that when we believe in him, his righteousness is then imputed to us. We are declared righteous. God is free then to bless us and to save us. In John 16, 11, we learn that the third thing the Holy Spirit convicts us of is of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged and that is confirmed in Colossians 2.15 that at the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. And then we concluded with what the Bible teaches about regeneration. What we saw there is that at the instant we trust in Christ as Savior, we have two realms of relationship with God. The one on the left is our legal position. It's an eternal reality. The one on the right is a temporal reality. It's our experience. 
And when we trust in Christ, we are regenerated. The reason we have to have regeneration is clearly stated in Scripture, Ephesians 2.1. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. That means we're alienated from the life of God, uh, according to Ephesians 4.18. And we are therefore spiritually dead. We can think, we can do many things, we're physically alive, but we cannot have a relationship with God or we do not have uh, real life. Jesus told Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we must be born again or regenerated. This is most clearly stated in Titus 3.5 that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And that conjunction there that links them it probably is best translated as even uh, in the sense of through the washing of regeneration, even the renewing of the Holy Spirit, or it has an explanatory sense where it's by the washing of regeneration that is, explaining what regeneration is, it is the washing or the cleansing, the renewal of God the Holy Spirit. Now that brings everybody up to date from last week, and now we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. So I would like for you, if you haven't turned there yet, turn to Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 11. Matthew 3, 11, and I'm going to give you ten introductory points about, about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Apparently I had one projector that's not on, so we're turning it on. Okay, what the Bible teaches about God the Holy Spirit. First of all, what we see from what we just looked at, we have our eternal realities and our temporal realities. Eternal realities are that which is true for us. There it's coming on. Uh, true for us throughout all of eternity from the instant we're saved. Temporal realities are our our experience, we won't get to that for some time. The circle on the left is white because we are called children of light. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Walk in the light, for you are children of light. We are in Christ. What happens in the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So we are placed in Christ, in the body of Christ. And the passages for this, the two central passages are Matthew 3.11 and the parallels in the other Gospels and 1 Corinthians 12.13. So let's just give a summary of the significance of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. First of all, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is uniquely the work of the Holy Spirit for this present age. It's uniquely his work in this age. Okay? It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the tribulation. It is not in the millennial kingdom. It is unique and distinctive to this church age. Now, we have to understand what the word baptism means. Because this, again, is loaded with confusion. Because there are so many people who think, when they hear the word baptism, they immediately think of, of water baptism, either immersion or sprinkling, something of that nature. And that's the only thing they think of. And you have a certain number of people who, whenever they see the word baptism in the Bible, they immediately think of water baptism, of believer's baptism. But that's only one of eight different baptisms that we find in the Bible. And there are only three baptisms that are wet. The first wet baptism is the baptism of John the Baptist, where he is calling people to repentance in preparation for the coming kingdom that he was announcing. And so he is, when they repent, they, he takes them to the Jordan River, and he uses the water of the Jordan River as the instrument or means for identifying them with repentance and with the kingdom. 
That's the first wet baptism. The second wet baptism is the baptism of Jesus Christ. It's not the same as John's, even though John does it. It's unique because John's baptism involved people repenting. Jesus has nothing to repent of, but it is an identification with the kingdom, for that's his, 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 um, that's his message, is the kingdom. Now, in both of those examples, I talked about identification. See, in the Greek, the word bapto means to dip, immerse, submerge, to, and we transliterate it as baptize because there was a, a failure to literally translate it in the Reformation period because up to that time, baptism had been completely distorted. It was a sign of entry into the church, but also entry into citizenship because church and state were united. So if you said you didn't believe in baptism, what you were rejecting was infant baptism that also identified the person as a citizen of the state. So if you said that's wrong, you were not only committing theological heresy, but you were committing a, a, an act of treason against the state. And so rather than getting into all of that, they were cowards. And instead of translating it, they just transliterated it to avoid the whole issue. So it has that, that is its literal meaning, but it has a figurative meaning that it represented identification with a new condition or a new state. It was uh, often seen as, as an, a, an introduction uh, into a new state or an initiation into a, a new situation. So it has this idea of identification, and if we translate it as identification, a lot of these passages make a little more sense. That's the significance of the baptism by the Holy Spirit is that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's our new legal position in Christ and our new identity in Christ. We have a whole new identity. Before you were saved, you thought you were something. Whatever that was, that was your image of yourself, your idea of yourself, and what you wanted, everything was wrapped up in that identity. But at the instant that you're saved, you get a new identity in Christ. And you spend the rest of your life as a growing Christian figuring out how to make this new actual legal identity part of your daily identity. So instead of thinking of yourself the way the world thinks of itself, you think of yourself as Christ thinks of you, which is why a study of Ephesians is so important. In Acts 1.5, Jesus said, repeating the, the words that, that John had said, remember John's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he says there's going to be somebody coming after me who will baptize in the future. In Acts 1.5, it's still future. Jesus is seconds away from ascending to heaven at this point, and his last words to the disciples are, for John truly baptized, there's that N word again, translated with, with water, but you shall be, that's future tense, you shall be in the future baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that tells us that in a few days, this is going to happen. Now, we know that Jesus ascended to heaven ten days before the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, and Luke records the following. He doesn't use the word baptism. He says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I put the two different Greek words for filled in here. We'll get to the filling of the Spirit later, but this sort of primes the pump a little bit. That in the New Testament, there are two different Greek words that are translated filled. And a lot of people have made the mistake of identifying them as synonyms, as talking about the same thing, but they do not. And I taught through this when we went through Acts. The first word, plerao, is the word that is used 
and Ephesians 5.18 for the believer when the command to be filled by the Spirit. A command like that indicates that there's only two options. You either are doing it or you're not doing it. So it has nothing to do with a positional reality. It's an experiential command. And it, it's this kind of filling, and the idea here is a good illustration, that the whole house is filled with this noise and with this wind. So they all have it there. It fills up something. In the second example, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a different word, pimplemi. And this word is used a number of times in the, in the New Testament. It's used of Zacharias. The father of John the Baptist, he was filled in me. And what happens? He he utters something. It, it's followed by a praise to God, three or four verses. It's used of Mary after she learns of the fact that she's going to be the mother of the humanity of the Messiah. She is filled with the spirit, pimplemi, and then she has what is called the Magnificat, her praise to God that he has chosen her to give birth to the Messiah. And in numerous places where this verb is used, it is almost immediately followed by the people who are filled speaking and talking about something. So it doesn't have anything to do with the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit that we'll see in Ephesians 5.18. We'll cover all this again in, in a couple of weeks. So the apostles here, they're the only ones that we're talking about. Nobody else gets this at that point. The apostles do. They were all, the all is, the they refers back to the 11 that are left in the upper room who have now come together on the day of Pentecost. They were all filled uh, with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages that they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this sets up all the confusion with the tongues issue. I've talked about that many times. I don't want to spend much time on that here. It's only important in that you have some people who jump to the conclusion that therefore speaking with, in tongues or speaking with other languages is the sign of the uh, filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit. And they just confuse, uh, confuse the two things uh, together. But here it's very clear that that this is this word for filling that and, and describing what's going on here is the fulfillment of Acts one five statement of the baptism. And in reality what happens here is they are they are baptized by the Spirit, they're indwelt by the Spirit, and they are filled by the Spirit all at the same time. Why? They're the very first ones. It's the beginning of the church. So the first guys get everything in one shot. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the unique mark of the church. Thus, all church-age believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit. They all have the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and so they are set apart. It's distinctive to the church age. Third point is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is distinct from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, though all three occurred simultaneously there on the day of Pentecost. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is never, never commanded, but the filling of the Holy Spirit is. Now, we'll see this in a subsequent point about the commanding, but you've got to draw that distinction since the filling... Uh, by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is a, a command and therefore it's distinct from the other two. Fourth point, in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements, this is a second work of grace after salvation and is necessarily evidenced by the speaking in tongues. Now, I know this gets confusing, but the Pentecostals confused us and they make everybody else confused, so we have to straighten this mess out. Pentecostalism was what happened on January the 1st, uh, 1901, when a student at uh, a, a Bible Institute in Topeka, Kansas, uh, spoke in tongues and claimed she was speaking in Chinese. Later, they realized it wasn't Chinese, it was gibberish, so they said it's a prayer language to get around the problem. That became known as the first wave of the Holy Spirit. And in Pentecostal theology, when you, you have 
your salvation at one point and after salvation at some point when you're really dedicated, commit, committed to Jesus, then you're going to get this second work of grace that they identified as the baptism of the Spirit, and it's necessarily evidenced by speaking in tongues. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not baptized by the Spirit, and you're a second-class Christian. That's basically what they meant. And so they all separated from whatever churches they were going to and went and started their own denominations. Then in the late 50s, you had an Episcopal priest in Van Nuys, California, speak in tongues in the, in the church service at St. Mark's Episcopal and upset everybody. And he did refuse to leave his church or leave the denomination. So they became charismatics. See, Pentecostals left and formed their own churches, charismatics stayed. So now you have charismatic Baptists and Presbyterians and Episcopals and Catholics and everybody else, and it gets ecumenical. But they still believe that the baptism by the Spirit was a second work of grace that made you more spiritual than everybody else, and it was necessarily evidenced by speaking in tongues. Then in the 70s, you get a guy named John Wimber and a church growth, one of the fathers of the church growth movement, which is why the church growth movement is so bad, named Peter Wagner. And they got together and they come up with a new twist on things. Then And Wimber's church was called the Vineyard Church. It was also called the Signs and Wonders Movement. But they called it the third wave of the Holy Spirit. And they said... Uh, you may or may not be baptized by the Holy Spirit after you're saved. You might be baptized with the Spirit when you're saved, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to speak in tongues. And so a lot of people who were out of Bible churches thought, okay, this is better. I'll get involved with that. Three professors at Dallas Seminary got involved with the Wimber movement in the mid-80s and all lost their jobs because of that. And at that time, I was working on my doctorate in church history and thought this might make a good dissertation topic. So I went out to a uh, spiritual warfare conference in Southern California at the Mother Church, at the Vineyard Church. And boy, was that an, an, an experience. But one of the things that they had, they had these little workshops, these breakout sessions. And I went to one, and a guy by the name of Mike Bickle, who now heads up a really wacko prayer ministry called IHOP. It's not pancakes. It's the International House of Prayer. And it, it's, it's just way, way out of bounds. But he was an assistant to Wimber. And I went to this workshop on the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, people have trouble understanding the baptism by the Spirit. There's all kinds of controversy. And people just don't want to speak in tongues. And they're afraid this, this will happen and that will happen. So we never talk about it. We use the word uh, overwhelmed. And we ask people, have you ever been overwhelmed by the Spirit? And they say no. And then we go, and they get overwhelmed by the Spirit. And go, golly, getting baptized by the Spirit wasn't so bad, was it? And I thought, gee, that's a bait-and-switch con artist tactic. That has nothing to do with the Bible. They're just lying. They're creating fraud. And um, that's the least of the sins of that movement. So that was how they handled the uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit. So there's just lots of confusion out there uh, about this. And it's only when you really get into the Word and see how everything ties together that you understand these things. So here are the major passages. We'll go through most of them so you don't have to scramble to write them all down at one time. Matthew 3.11, that's the key one. Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, and John 1.33 are parallels. They're all quoting John the Baptist. Acts 1.5 is the passage we just looked at. Acts 11.16, that's the only other place where the baptism by the Holy Spirit is mentioned in relation to what happens when Peter gives the gospel to Cornelius and the Gentiles. Peter says the Holy Spirit came on them as he did with us at the beginning. So he's specifically saying what happened to the Gentiles is what happened to the apostles in Acts 2. So we're all part of the same thing. Then Romans 6, 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. These are central passages. Galatians 3, 27 describes that we are all one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female. We're all one in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 5, and Colossians 2, 12. So we'll look at uh, most of those as we go through. The sixth point, 
was that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs for every believer at the instant of salvation. And it's not experienced. It's only learned by studying the Bible. If you felt better, that's great. There are people who don't feel better. There are people who get saved and they're down in the dumps and they've got a cold or they've got the flu or they've got cancer and they don't feel so great. The thief on the cross didn't, well, he didn't get baptized by the Spirit anyway. So that's just a bad illustration. Okay, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Notice that Paul's talking to these carnal Corinthians. They are, they're not, he's not even sure they're in fellowship ever. They are so committed to their carnality. And yet he tells them, we, you and I, we, all of us, all you carnal, rebellious, arrogant, antinomian Corinthians, we were all, without exception, baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves are free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. See what he's talking about. There's one body for Jew and Gentile. That's what he really is explaining when we get over to Ephesians chapter chapter 4. And he says one baptism. He means, A, there's one baptism, not multiple baptisms. But he's really saying in context, as we've seen before, where it talks about the fact that we are made alive together, we are raised together, and we are seated together. We are both one. All of that that I've been emphasizing, when he says there's one baptism, he's, he's also saying there's one baptism for Jew and, one ba- and the same baptism for Gentiles. It's all got to be referring to the uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit. Seventh, there's no command to be baptized by the Spirit. There's no command to be indwelt by the Spirit. It's because it automatically happens at the instant of salvation. Now, there's a command to be filled by the Spirit, so that makes it very obvious that the filling by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is something different from either the baptism by the Spirit or being indwelt by the Spirit. And we'll get into that eventually. So there's no command to be baptized by the Spirit. It automatically happens for everybody. Eighth, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is what places us into the body of Christ by identifying us with his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the essence of it. We are legally put in Christ and identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And and Romans 6, 4 says that's the basis of living a new life, is understanding that. Ninth, Tongues only accompanied it at Pentecost with all of those present. It accompanied it in, with the Gentiles in Acts uh, 10.46 and with the disciples of John in Ephesus in Acts 19. But tongues wasn't present with the Samaritans in Acts 8. It's not always there. It's there in three instances, but not in the one with the Samaritans. And there are reasons for that, but that shows you that tongues isn't necessarily connected to it. Tenth, there, the only two times uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Acts is in Acts 2 and Acts 11.15 to 16. And 11.15, um, where Paul says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them the Gentiles as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think I got this. That should be 1146. That's a typo right there. Axel, I think. No, that's the Acts 1046. I stand corrected. Okay. Let's look at these passages. Matthew 311. John the Baptist is baptizing those who want to be identified with the kingdom, those who are repentant, those who are responding to his, his message, and he sees Jesus come. Or this is before he sees Jesus, the day before he saw Jesus. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. The preposition there is important. The baptism isn't the reason, doesn't make them repentant. It is into the state of repentance. It's identifying them with repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit. How did that get left out? The Holy Spirit and fire. That got left out in a couple of places. Okay. It should be by the means of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I want you to notice there are three baptisms mentioned in that verse. You have the baptism of, of John, which is by water. That's a wet baptism for repentance. And then you have two other baptisms that are dry. The baptism by the Holy Spirit and the baptism by fire. Five of the eight baptisms in Scripture are dry. You just go back to Genesis. The first baptism is Noah. The people who got wet are the people who weren't on the ark. Okay, so it's, it's a dry baptism. The next one is in uh, Exodus when the Israelites cross over into uh, across the Red Sea. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 3, that they were baptized into Moses and into the cloud. So they're identified with Moses and the cloud is God. They're identified with God and they cross over the river and they're dry. The people who got wet died. So baptism isn't necessarily uh, necessarily wet. And then you have the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is dry, and the baptism uh, of fire, which is the judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation period, and that's obviously dry. And then Jesus talks about to Peter, he says, can you be baptized with the, with the baptism I'm going to have, which is the baptism of the cross? So those are the five uh, dry baptisms. So in Matthew 3.11, John is making a comparison between what he does with water and with what Jesus will do with the Holy Spirit and what he will do with fire, but we're going to leave the fire out of it for now. So what we have here is... As for me, I baptize. That's a present indicative. It means I am now baptizing you with water for repentance. What he's using as a means of identifying them with repentance is water. Then he uses the same structure and he says, He, Jesus, will baptize you in the future. Jesus does the baptizing. And it will be in the future, and he will do it by means of, in numity, by means of the Spirit. So, he's going to, what he's saying is, Christ is going to use the Spirit like I've used the water to identify you with the new state. Same thing he says in Luke 3.16. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. Present tense, I use water to identify you with the state of repentance. He says, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize its future tense. He will baptize you in the future with the Holy Spirit. Same thing is being said. He will baptize in Matthew 3.11. He will baptize you by means of the Spirit and fire. So, trying to make this clear. John compares what he does with water to what Jesus will do with the Holy Spirit. So it's viewing the Holy Spirit not as a person, but as a person who's being used to bring something about. Second, just as John used water as the means to identify the repentant person with the coming kingdom... So Jesus in the future will use the Holy Spirit to identify the new believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection and place the believer into the body of Christ and in himself. Christ is always the subject of the verb. He always performs the action of the verb. Even when his name isn't mentioned, the grammar's clear. So in Acts 1-5, again we see John baptized. John did the work. He performed the action of baptism. And then Jesus says, but you will be baptized. And it's the same phrase in the Greek, so we have to translate it the same way. You will be, translated by, you will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. Who does the baptism in Acts 1-5? Who performs it? It's got to be the same person that you have in all the other 
all the other verses. Okay, it's always Christ who does it, even when he's not mentioned. You will be baptized. Christ is the one who's going to do the baptism because he's always the, been, he's been prophesied as the one who does the baptism. And the end phrase indicates the means. This is why we have to be specific on 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In the English, it looks like the Spirit is the one doing the baptism because of the way we express the agent of action with a passive verb. But it's the same part, uh, same prepositions all throughout. For by means of one spirit, that is, in numity, the same phrase we have in all the Gospels, that Christ will baptize you in numity. By means of one spirit, we were all baptized, passive voice. Uh, but it's a past voice and a passive voice. I mean, past tense, passive voice. So Paul is saying all of us were in the past baptized. So... That means that all these Corinthian, carnal Corinthians are all baptized, and it's a passive, which means they receive the baptism, but it doesn't specify who does the baptism. But in English, it looks like it's the Spirit, but that's wrong based on the Greek grammar. For example, this is like a formula in 1 Corinthians 10.2. Uh, the Israelites were all were baptized, air is passive, into Moses and in the cloud by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. So the instrument that's used is the cloud and the sea, but who does the baptizing? It's got to be God. He's not stated. So let's have an English grammar lesson. We have a simple phrase, John hit the ball with the bat. The bat is the instrument he uses to hit the ball. So John performs the action. He's the subject of the verb in an active voice verb. He hits the ball. The ball is the object of his action, and he uses the bat to do it. Now, if we change it to a passive construction and say the ball was hit by John, the ball was hit by John. That second. How did this get messed up? Um, the Part of this, because I brought it over from PowerPoint, but I don't know how that happened. Uh, the ball was hit by John with the bat. Just leave out that second, the ball. The ball was hit by John with the bat. So with the bat, is still the same. It expresses means. But the subject of the passive verb is the ball. And John is the one who performs the action. But now he's stated as by John. That's how we use it in English. But in Greek... I'm going to fix that. It's driving me crazy. Okay. There. The ball is a subject. It was hit, the verb, the, and it's a passive verb, by John, who's a performer of the action. He does it by means of the bat. Greek always uses the preposition hupa, to indicate the one who performs the action. Okay, so it's really clear. It's very precise. So, hupa indicates the one who performs the action of a passive verb. So, in Matthew 3, 6, where it says, they were baptizing, they were baptized by him, that is, by John the Baptist in the Jordan, the by there is an in, it's hupa. You look at Matthew 3, 13 and 3, 14, says uh, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. It's not in, it's hupa. Matthew 3.14, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus uses the word hupa. So hupa indicates the one who's going to perform the action of the verb. And that is very important because the in always inst indicates the instrument. So the Holy Spirit is not the one who's baptizing anybody. The Holy Spirit is the one Jesus uses to baptize people. How he does that, I don't know. But I don't know how we're in Christ either. So at some point, we just get beyond our finite comprehension. But it's important to understand this. We don't have two baptisms. 
We don't have one by the Spirit and one with the Spirit. We don't have one where Christ baptizes and then in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Holy Spirit baptizes. We have one baptism, period, which is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. So, we can compare all of these different passages, and what we see is the means is always indicated by the phrase in, and it's always translated with the, almost always translated with the English by, but some in the Gospels it's with. And then the state is indicated by the ace preposition. So it's, it's a really precise formula. John the Baptist uses waters to identify, water to identify the person with repentance. Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify the person with himself in his death, burial, resurrection, and into his body. So as I said earlier, John compares what he does with water to what Jesus will do with the Holy Spirit. Just as John used water as the means to identify the repentant person with, with the coming kingdom, so Jesus in the future will use the Holy Spirit to identify the new believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection. Of course, by future there, it was future to that time, but it is present in the church age. So in Galatians 3:27 and 28, Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We have put on Christ. We are in Christ. And in Christ, it's no longer significant spiritually whether we're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, because we're all one in Christ. There's no basis for racism whatsoever, we're our, our sexism or anything. We're all one in Christ. Romans 6, 3, and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? As many of us as were identified with Christ were identified with his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. That's the punchline. That's the action plan is we have to understand what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, because if we're confused on that and we don't get it right, we don't understand its importance. And the importance is that this power of the sin nature is broken. The presence is still there, but the power is broken so that now for the first time in history, starting on A.D. 33, Christians, because they have been identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the sin nature is the tyranny is broken, they can walk in newness of life. No one prior to A.D. 33 ever could do that. They were regenerated, they had new life, but they didn't have the sin nature power broken because that's the result of the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And if we don't get that right, we can't get anything else right in the spiritual life. The spiritual life then just becomes another form of legalism. It's morality. It's not spirituality and walking by the Spirit. So this is why I take the pains to go through this, is we have to understand what it says before we can understand what to do. And if we don't understand what it says right, then we'll do the wrong thing. Now we know that's the foundation for the spiritual life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to reflect upon them, to take what appears to be mean one thing on the surface of an English trans- translation and realize that it has a different significance based on the Greek, that Christ has done so much for us, that because of him we are blessed with so much, and we have this new identity, this new position these new blessings, which have never been experienced by any Christian before in all of human history. No believer has ever had these privileges. But we are because we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, and it's a new reality. And we don't live like it. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand this more and more, 
that we would just be wowed by all that you have done for us, just just astonished. Father, we pray for anyone who's listening to this message who's never trusted Christ as Savior. They don't have any of this. Neither did we before we were saved. But this is a free gift. All of this is part of the package that we all get by trusting in Christ in this church age. And we don't have to do anything to get this package. Christ did it all. It's given as a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. It is something that is freely given. We trust in Christ and it's ours. That's it. We pray that anyone not saved would recognize they need to be saved. They need to trust in Christ as Savior. And then they are a new creature in Christ and all things are new. And we pray this in his name. Amen.